For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is in Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with, a plausible, with plausible arguments. For though, I am, for though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Well, good morning, church. It's good to see everyone uh, today. And uh, it's been, uh, you know, quite a week, hasn't it? Um, what a sad week it has been. Um, you know, as the events in Nashville unfolded on Monday, uh, the image that struck me to the core uh, was this one right here. Probably some of you saw that too. Uh, that, that picture just says everything, doesn't it? It says it all. Um, there's a special kind of power to communicate with pictures, with music, with art, paintings in general. Um, the same is true with metaphors and with, uh, let me get that, there we go, with metaphors and word pictures have that same ability. And this is what Paul actually makes use of in chapter two. He stacks metaphor and word picture upon metaphor and word picture, and he breaks the cardinal rule of English language, and he mixes his metaphors, and he doesn't care. Uh, he's, <laughs> and he's just wild with it, beginning here in these verses all the way to the end of the chapter. He's going to do this. A good example is in verse 5, when he says, For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. That last expression, the good order and firmness of your faith, this is what he has in mind. He's making use of a, of a military term, a, a, a phalanx, you know, which the, the, the Greeks kind of created. And Alexander the Great conquered the known world, fighting armies that were exponentially larger than his, through the use of the phalanx, and then the, the Roman Empire, they perfected it, and they had it down to an art. And you see a great example of this, where they are in order, standing firm, in order. That's the, that's the expression that Paul uses here, and he's using it to commend the Corinthians, that they have, they have been standing strong, arm in arm, lockstep, defending themselves against the the false teachings and the messages that were coming their way and the attacks that were ultimately empowered by the enemy himself. The message this morning focuses on verses 6 and 7, which, as I mentioned, are also filled with word pictures. Literally every phrase in these two verses is a word picture of some kind or another. Warren Wearsby summarizes the truth of these verses with a, with a great sentence, and I want to give it to you as a, a takeaway truth this morning. A grounded, growing, and grateful believer will not be led astray. Read it out loud with me. A grounded, growing, and grateful believer will not be led astray. 
Verses 6 and 7 are what are known as hinge verses or pivot verses. Uh, With these verses, Paul is concluding this magnificent passage that uh, began back in chapter 1. I preached a couple of messages. Jacob preached a message from this one massive passage. Verses 6 and 7 are concluding all that we learned there. And after this summary... Uh, he is going to pivot. That's why they're called pivot verses. He's going to pivot and directly address and attack the messages that were being given to the Colossians church. But these verses, they kind of, they help conclude what was said all about Jesus, how he's the firstborn of the creation, the firstborn from among the dead. He's the mystery of the gospel. He is Christ in us which is how we have been transplanted from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. And so these verses are essentially saying, okay, in light of that, now who we are in Christ having been transplanted, so what? What do we do? And these verses help answer that. So we're going to jump right in. Two verses, two points. How's that for synchronicity, okay? So first of all, let's look at the idea, the command to walk in Christ. Verse 6 says, Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. As you received him, so walk in him. Verse 6 is, it kind of contains the umbrella metaphor. Walk in him. And verse 7 unpacks it and illustrates it with four more. Like I said, every phrase in these two verses is a word picture of some kind or another. But the overarching one is this idea of walking in Christ, which is a metaphor for living life. So as you receive Jesus, live your life. This includes both the internal reality and our external conduct. It's a favorite of Paul's. He uses it in several uh, chapters and several books. We'll see it in chapter 3. He uses it for the Ephesians when he tells them to walk as children of light because they're no longer children of darkness. He uses it for the Galatians when he says, walk by the Spirit so that you do not gratify the desires of the flesh. And he will again use it in conjunction with sinful behavior in chapter 3 when we are to walk as children who follow Jesus Christ. In this passage, if you think about it, Paul puts before us the wrong way to walk and the right way to walk. Earlier in the passage, in chapters and verses 1 to 5, he alludes to the wrong way to walk by pointing out how the Colossians are walking in the right way. So, for example, the wrong way to walk would be to walk alone as a lone ranger. Colossians weren't guilty of this. He he commends them in verse 2 that their, again, word picture, their hearts are knit together in love. To walk in Christ means to walk in biblical community. The wrong way to walk as a Christian is to walk alone as a lone ranger. It is to walk along with the false teachers. Verse 4, he, he says, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. So it is certainly possible as Christians to walk in the wrong way. We can walk alone and we can walk along with false teachers. The right way to walk, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. So that begs the question, how did you receive Christ Jesus as Lord. Well, through faith, through the Holy, through faith, you 
believed in the promised Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one, the, the prophet, the ultimate prophet of God who embodies the truth of God, who proclaims the truth of God. Through faith, you received Jesus as your Savior, that perfect high priest who atones for our sins, who intercedes to the Father on our behalf because he sits at the right hand of the throne of God. Through faith, you receive Jesus as your King, as Lord. So therefore, we, we bow to him, we surrender to him, we worship him, we follow and obey him as he leads us to eternal life. So what does it mean to walk in him? That, that little expression, in him, is actually very important. And I thought, what kind of picture would maybe illustrate that idea of in him, living our life in him? I thought about a road with signs or maybe a hiker on a trail that was really dangerous. And, and those are all legitimate ideas, but the, those little words in him truly take on significance. And I think a better picture is this. We all have the idea of what's going on here. This is somebody who needs to wash their hands. Uh, no. This is someone who took a, a dirty mat, you know, lump of clay that had all kinds of impurities and was just a blob and began to work it and shape it and take out the impurities and to form it over and over and keep working on it and keep working on it and, and so that the, the impurities that are deep down would rise to the surface and stays at it until finally there is this vessel that is pure and beautiful and good and functional and valuable. And that picture right here has this idea of walking in him. Through the Holy Spirit, Christ lives within us. He's empowering us. He's inspiring us. He's molding every part of our lives to reflect his glory. And this is happening because he has fundamentally changed us from the inside in his to who we are. Listen to how the apostle Peter describes what Jesus has done here. He says, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become, look, look at you may become partakers of the divine nature. Do you catch the significance of that? We become partakers of the divine nature. He changes who we are, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. He goes on to illustrate what those virtues look like. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. To be a Christian is to receive through faith Jesus Christ as our Lord and our Savior, but our spiritual journey doesn't stop there. That's the beginning. And therefore, we are commanded because of who we now are in Jesus to walk in him through faith, to continue our lives in him. Verse 7 goes on to explain how this can happen, what it looks like when we walk in him. So we saw, first of all, 
This idea of the command to walk in him. Now let's look at the characteristics of one who is walking in Christ. Rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. When we think of the characteristics, the very first one that comes to mind is a nourishing life that is rooted in Christ. And if we want a picture for this, can't do any better than a tree. A tree that is beautiful and gives shade and fruit above ground has under the ground a massive root system and a tap root that is in the soil. And this gives stability and security and is the avenue through which the nutrients are delivered so that the tree can become healthy. And this is what's going on here. And interestingly, the verb tense is that it's been accomplished. God has planted us. He has rooted us in the good soil of Jesus. He did it. He accomplished it. We are now anchored or rooted in him, drawing life from him, and we will never be uprooted. Isn't that a great promise from God? And so this picture here is one of security, that even on your worst day, the tree doesn't get ripped out of the soil. No, you are rooted. You are planted. You're going to stay there so that there is security and stability, and you're going to grow up just like those massive trees that even when the hurricanes come along and the winds blow, their root system holds them in the ground, anchored. You think about all the trials that come our way as Christians, because we're rooted in Christ, we are stable and secure. That's what the roots do. But being rooted in Christ also means that we draw our strength from him. We draw our vitality and our health from him. This kind of reminds us of what Jesus said in John 15, Remain in me and I will remain in you. For a branch cannot produce fruit if it is severed from the vine. And you cannot be fruitful unless you remain in me. Yes, I am the vine, the true vine, he says. You are the branches. Those who remain in me and I in them will produce much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. How does God ensure that we will walk in him, in Jesus, he roots us in him. He's the soil in whom we have been planted. Now, what does this look like? It looks like a growing life that is anchored to, church, to, to Christ. Paul very quickly goes from an agricultural metaphor, or excuse me, from, a, from, a, yeah, from an agricultural metaphor to a construction metaphor. And for us as a church, this is really relatable right now. <laughs> and, so we are to be built up in him. Uh, in some translations, we'll, be, we'll say built up in him and on him. And that's a, that's a great amplification of what's going on here. I thought of a lot of, what kind of picture? I almost went out to our building site because I was out there and I, I stepped down into the, the trenches for our foundation and just to see how deep is, our, is the foundation. And so our, the foundations for our new building in places are, are four foot deep. Wow, four foot deep, that's cool. But I instead decided to do this. I looked up what building has the, the, the biggest, deepest foundation on earth, and it's this building right here, the Shanghai Tower. It's right now like the second or third tallest building. They're, they're building one in the, in the Arab Emirates that's gonna be almost a mile high. 
but even its foundation is not as big as the foundation for the Shanghai Tower. You ought to look at that beautiful picture, beautiful buildings, but get this. The Shanghai Tower, its foundation, 314 million pounds of concrete in the foundation. That is 282 feet below ground. Isn't that something? It's amazing. And of course, we understand why it needs this foundation and for the building to be anchored to this foundation. That part of the world has earthquakes and tsunamis and they wanna ensure that there's not a problem with what's going on here. So when you consider this and what it's being said in this verse, it's telling us that our life and our church even is to be built up brick by brick, rock by rock, block by block, and it's to be done within the presence, the power, and within the life of Jesus. He's the all-encompassing environment that shapes everything and affects everything in our lives, and the same is true to be true for our church. We are built up in him. Again, that expression, in him, so important. He's the all-encompassing sphere of what all activity, all growth, Everything takes place. It all flows out of Jesus. And as the building rests upon him and is anchored upon him as, the foundation, uh, as upon a foundation, so we too rest upon Christ. And we're anchored to him for our own lives and for our own spiritual growth. In, in a way, this little phrase is a reminder and a warning at the same time. We do not start with Jesus and then grow up to maturity in some other way other than Jesus. We come into the Christian life with Jesus. We grow in the Christian life through Jesus. It's all anchored in Jesus. But it's a, always a constant temptation for Christians, after they become a believer, to say, you know, this is kind of, oh, I want to move on. And they add to Jesus and they add to the gospel some other idea, some other philosophy, some other doctrinal emphasis and esoteric or practice of life, thinking that this is really going to help them grow as a Christian. And they don't understand that this is nothing more than a temptation from the enemy. The more he can separate us from Christ and the truth of the gospel, the weaker we actually become. We are severing ourselves from the foundation at that point. This is a temptation that was in the first century church. The Corinthians, Paul is exasperated. He says somebody comes along with any other kind of gospel, any kind of other message, any kind of, other kind of mess, spirit, and you put up with it readily enough. To the Galatians, his concern is even more drastic. He says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. The idea with this phrase development and progress and a growing consistently growing spiritual life towards maturity as we're seeing in our building program down the street buildings don't go up quickly do they <laughs> they also don't go up on our schedule that's for sure and every building has a master architect master builder uh, other workers materials Lots of sacrifice are involved. All of this is applicable to us. When we apply it to us, we recognize that Jesus Christ is both the foundation and the architect and the master builder 
and the source of power and the source of the materials, it all finds itself in Jesus. So what's our role in all this? Well, Stephen Olford writes that we are to count on Jesus. We are to rest in him. We are to be anchored to him in total obedience if we're going to grow tall and strong in the Christian life. We must have a growing obedience, he writes. And this takes us to our third characteristic. We've had a nourished life rooted in Christ, a growing life anchored to Christ, and thirdly, a strong life fortified by Christ. He writes in verse seven, established in the faith, just as you were taught. He mixes his metaphors. Here you have the idea of not only construction, but also education and learning. And so I said, what kind of picture would demonstrate that? And what came to mind was something that's famous in American history, and that is the one-room schoolhouse. You know, a lot of one-room schoolhouses in the early days were built out of wood, and they don't survive, but this is the oldest existing one-room schoolhouse in America. It's the Brainerd School in New Jersey, built back in the early 1700s. And you can notice, brick upon brick was put in place, cemented and mortared together by those Puritans. They built it to last, and here it is, what, almost 300 years later, and it's still an attractive building. And that's the picture that Paul is giving us of what God intends to do in this building project as he builds us block upon block, anchored to him as the chief cornerstone. As our life is being built brick upon brick, a strong structure occurs because the bricks are cemented together with the gospel with Jesus. And underlying this characteristic is that we never grow too smart for the gospel. We never outgrow the truth of God's word. This word is constantly being learned and experienced and applied. There's certainly an intellectual and a scholastic aspect to it. We, we are to spend time studying God's word. We need to spend time systematically learning the doctrines and the truths of God's word. We need to understand the gospel and be rooted in the gospel. But there is a huge difference between knowing about Jesus and knowing Jesus. There's a huge difference between knowing about God and knowing God. There is a massive difference between knowing the particulars and the details about the gospel and knowing the gospel through personal experience. And that's what's going on here. It's not just an empty intellectual exercise. It is life happening block upon block that is cemented with the truth of the gospel that is experienced in our lives, something that we never outgrow. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 3, I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, does this sound familiar? Rooted and established in love may have power together with all the saints to grasp, to understand, to see how 
wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. When you begin to see your spiritual life get stale and think, you know, I just need to add, I need to go, I just, we just need to go deeper. Because you've arrived, apparently. The issue is not that you have arrived. The issue that Paul says is you need to pray and ask God to expand your capacity of understanding your brain and your heart's ability to grasp the width and the depth and the height and the full dimension of what you have already learned in the gospel. And I think what happens is we come to the gospel almost like, a, like an iceberg. You know, you, imagine you come across an iceberg and you come to it and you get out and you chart it and you measure it and you explore it. You know where all the crevices are. You know how it, it moves. I mean, you know everything about that iceberg as you see it there. And you can come to a point where you say, I am an expert on this iceberg, not realizing that what you see is only about a fourth to a third of the actual iceberg. The rest of it is beneath the surface. You haven't even begun to understand and know that iceberg. And that's what Paul is saying here with this idea of being established in the faith. Just as you were taught, spending time meditating on the scriptures and on the word of God, taking the gospel and asking God to open our hearts and our minds and our understanding and our application of the gospel to everything that we experience in life because everything that we experience in life will find application within the word of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. We never arrive here. This is an ongoing thing. Just like building a growing life anchored in Christ is ongoing and a strong life fortified by Christ is ongoing. Being rooted in Christ, that's a boom, done. And then we were rooted back then at salvation. We're rooted now. We'll be rooted forever. But these metaphors are continuous, ongoing. We never arrive, leaving us with our final one, an abundant life, joyfully lived for Christ. The picture for this is an overflowing river because that word abundant was always was used within ancient writings for rivers that would get over their banks and flow everywhere. And so the, the picture here is of us, our thanksgiving and gratitude just overrunning and overflowing all the cups of our life. Our cup overfloweth, right? The, the psalmist says it's that picture of a life that is just characterized by gratitude and thanksgiving. Kent Hughes writes that thankfulness is a good test of our spiritual state. A thankless spirit betrays a life which is no longer focusing on the greatness of Christ. It is looking down, not up. Thankful hearts herald, herald spiritual health. A hallmark of being filled with the spirit is to be filled with joyful gratitude for who Jesus is and how he has worked in our lives. And church, how desperately does our angry, bitter, divided, violent world need Christians who are overflowing with joyful thankfulness? There is something compelling 
about people who are characterized by just overabundant thankfulness. This gratitude, it will certainly affect our, our worship when we come together. It changes the tone of our worship. This gratitude, however, does something for us personally. It, it keeps our eyes where they belong on Jesus. The more time we spend being thankful and praying and expressing our gratitude and thankfulness, it takes our eyes off of ourselves and it puts our eyes on the one to whom they belong. And that has incredible benefits. One of the things it does is it reminds us of where we would be without Jesus. Have you thought about that lately? I mean, just stop and think for a minute. Where would you be without Christ in your life. Some of you, you need Christ in your life. Some of you are struggling with life and you have all these kinds of big questions unanswered because you've yet to surrender your life to Christ. The answer to your questions is a person, is Jesus. Christian, as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, so walk in him. Are you living under the Lordship of Christ? Or are there areas of your life that you are willfully, intentionally refusing to surrender and lay at the altar? That you're holding on to something because it's so precious to you that you refuse to say it's yours, Lord? Is there a, a part of your life, an area of life, where you're consistently not obeying him? I find in my own life that when I struggle in these areas i am typically listening to a false inner narrative for me it's it's not the it's not the false gospels that are on tv with the telev televangelist and that are false messages that give me it's, it's not when jehovah's witnesses come and knock on my door every other day because I live back to the park and they start there and every other day they seem to come by. I, I honestly, you can, be, you can be confident, I am not tempted by the message of the Jehovah's Witnesses. Okay? I'm not tempted by those things. Um, it's the untrue voice of my sin nature that I'm not drowning out with the, the message of the gospel. That's when I have problems. That's when I will struggle. So what false messages are you listening to? What inner narrative is at work in your life that you have yet to put under the, the weight of the gospel? Changes how we live. Let me leave you with this, two empowering gospel truths this morning. As you think about and you identify, maybe spend some time praying, Lord, what are those inner narratives? And they're going to be different from one person to the next. First of all, remember, the gospel that you believe for salvation is greater than any message, whether it's an inner message or an outer message, an inner narrative that you're tempted to listen to. The message of the gospel is greater than all of them, and the message of the gospel is what will bring you deliverance from those false inner narratives. That's what the gospel does. And finally... The God who rooted you in Christ Jesus is going to build you up so that you bear much fruit for his glory. It's going to happen. I've been planting my garden. 
for about a month now. And so I've been meditating on this a lot as I'm doing my garden, I can't help it. And I've meant to take a picture because I, I have a, it's really come out, right? I've got potatoes and carrots and squash and tomatoes and all bell peppers and jalapeno peppers and Italian peppers and onions and green onions and herbs and yeah, I think that's about everything, right? And you know, before I planted those seeds and those plants, you know the first thing I did? The soil. And as I was working in that soil, I couldn't help but think about the soil of our spiritual life is Jesus. And how rich that soil is. How wonderful that soil, how, how powerful it is for our spiritual life. And then I planted those seeds and some plants I put in the ground and I made sure that they were in right and I watered them and I fertilized them and I put cages around them and I run the squirrels off and that stupid cat that keeps using it as a litter box and I'm at war with this thing, right? And I'm watching my garden, I'm tending it. And yesterday I was out there snapping off sucker branches from my tomato plants and I, every day those things will come up overnight. So every morning I go out and I look for the sucker branches and I thought to myself, what are the sucker branches in my life that are just sucking my energy and my worship away from my Lord Jesus Christ? There's so many, so much there. But you know what? I already have lots of fruit coming in. I want to be canning tomatoes out the wazoo. <laughs> I have potatoes and peppers, and I'm looking, and, and the fruit's already there. And Christian, that is your story. That's what God is doing in our lives. Isn't that wonderful? And all of this is because we have been rooted in Jesus. Now walk in him. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the beauty of this truth. I thank you for these brothers and sisters. We're all in different places in your garden. Some of us are mature plants that just keep bearing fruit and fruit and more fruit. And others of us are just young seedlings. We're just beginning. But we're so thankful that our growth is in your hands. That you have rooted us in Jesus. Lord, help us to listen to you, to reject the false narratives, to truly come to understand how high and how wide and how deep the breadth and the height of your grace and love towards us, Father, through Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.